You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 16th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show, playing the populist card, a former general and son-in-law of Indonesia's ex-dictator reinvents himself as an anti-elitism crusader in the country's upcoming presidential election. Guidelines by India's election commission are condemned as toothless amid claims the rules are being broken by the governing party. My guests Samira Shackle and James Rogers will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including as Democrat Bernie Sanders goes public with his tax returns, US President Donald Trump is coming under increasing pressure to release his own tax records. And... Millions of euros are pledged to help rebuild France's medieval Notre Dame Cathedral, which is partially destroyed in a major fire. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliette Foster. Yes, welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the writer and journalist Samira Shackle. Samira writes for a number of publications, including The Guardian, New Statesman and Monocle. So welcome to you for joining our programme. And also a welcome to James Rogers, who's Head of International Journalism Studies at City University London. Now, Indonesians go to the polls on Wednesday in elections to choose a president, national parliament and almost 20,000 positions in regional councils. The main focus of attention is the political rematch between the incumbent leader Jokowi Widodo and retired General Pabao Subianto. Mr Widodo is expected to win easily, but that hasn't stopped his rival from pulling out all the stops. Mr Subianto, who's also the son-in-law of the former dictator Suharto, is selling himself as a devout Muslim and anti-elitist candidate in a bid to win the support of poorer Indonesians and also hardline Islamists. So, he isn't tipped to win... But how much resonance, James, does that message actually have with a hardcore Islamist base? Well, I think in one sense his message is a little hard to swallow in the sense that it seems to be an increasing trend that people who themselves, not just in this part of the world but in other parts of the world, people who themselves come from quite wealthy or prosperous backgrounds are portraying themselves as somehow being against the elite when to most reasoned observers outside they would seem very much to be part of it, particularly in this case. But of course it is also true to say that in Indonesia and other parts of the world too, uh, religion is playing an increasingly important part in politics. Uh, and so this is obviously uh, for uh, anybody um, standing for election in a country which has such a large Muslim population. It may well be seen as a very wise electoral strategy, however sincerely or otherwise those beliefs may actually be held. Samira, just listening to this, you can't get away from the phenomenon of the Trump playbook. In other words, a character who comes across as, well, whose past points towards moral flaws, suddenly reinventing himself as somebody who champions the causes of the poor man, even though it was poor people who were actually on the receiving end of some of the violence which his his soldiers were responsible for in his time in in government. Mm, Absolutely. And as as 
you know, what James was just talking about uh, politicians who are ostensibly very much of the elite kind of purporting to be an anti-establishment, um, anti-elite voice. You know, you immediately think of um, of Donald Trump as well as many of the politicians advocating Brexit. I think Nigel Farage also kind of presenting himself as anti-establishment. Uh, so that's a real thing we're seeing kind of um, worldwide. And I'd add to that the other element that I think is quite um, about this election and particularly about Proboa's campaign, which is quite, uh, uh, it has a lot of similarities around the world, is the use of disinformation mm. um, and the kind of the way that social media facilitates that. He's mm. been... Um, but haven't they both been guilty of that? They both. Um, the, the, the studies that have come out show it's much more in favour of his campaign than the other side. And a lot of it, interestingly, links back to what you were just mentioning about religion. So... Um, his rival, the incumbent, is uh, is a devout Muslim, is known to be, but a lot of the disinformation uh, apparently hinges on the idea that he is going to bring in anti-Muslim policies, even though he's standing, his running partner is a cleric. So all um, of a sudden, piety is now an issue. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I thought it was quite interesting actually that the yeah that there there is disinformation on both sides, but it's kind of heavily weighted on one side, and so that's another uh, you know we're seeing around the world in all sorts of wildly divergent uh, in other ways democracies. Uh, not just kind of rise of this quite nationalist populist playbook, but also disinformation going alongside that. Mm. But James, if the polls are anything to go by, then it, it looks as if the incumbent is going to win. So clearly he's doing something right. But does that also appeal to, to the base, the millennials? I mean, how influential are the young people in these groups, particularly those who have memories of what it was like living under Suharto? Well, I mean, I think the young people are absolutely key in this election. I mean, one report that I was reading um, just earlier this week points out that um, almost half of the voters are under 40, and that's out of 192 million registered voters. So it's an absolutely huge electorate. I mean, some amazing figures here, eight, more than 800,000 polling stations. It really is uh, a big logistical challenge. But clearly, uh, in a country like that, where there is such a, a very young population, one imagines that if that many people are under 40, quite a lot of them will be voting for the first time. So a lot of them will not have uh, been old enough to vote mm. last time out. So it is clearly going to be a very important factor. Another thing to mention, too, um, is that, of course, there are, there, there's not just the presidential election taking place so it's going to be a huge logistical operation because mm. also other elections going on the same day which the authorities have decided to combine uh, because they believe that'll make it more efficient and cost effective but Samira even if um, the, the, um, Subianto isn't going to win he is still appealing to that hardcore traditional base so isn't there the potential for him to still be a bit of a thorn in the side of Mr Widodo would he have to somehow compromise to get these people to come on board uh, yeah, I mean, I think the last election was quite closely won. He won by, I think, about 6%. Um, and he's kind of managed to plough ahead. So it's, it's hard to tell, I think, but particularly given what James was saying about um, uh, many people voting for the first time, it can make voting behaviour kind of hard to predict. And I think the opinion polls are, some uh, put Wododa as much as 20% um, in the lead. And so... Which is a pretty meaty lead. Yeah, it's a pretty hefty lead, exactly. So I don't know really how... I mean, I think that um, you see across the board the increasing importance of religion and politics in Indonesia since the end of military dictatorship and that's something which maybe both of these candidates have tackled in a in a different way but it's certainly there on both sides um and i think maybe the a, a kind of deeper question is um 
having a candidate who kind of certainly represents a more authoritarian tradition, you know, a close affiliation to the Suharto regime, mm. uh, kind of, I think, raises the question of the much deeper uh, kind of political reforms and safeguarding of democratic institutions in Indonesia, which Wadodo has kind of, uh, kind of overlooked uh, during his uh, period in office um, in favour of focusing very much on the economy. Mm. Because interestingly enough, James, one of the points which has come across from the analysis of these two characters is, is that even though in some ways they are intrinsically different in terms of the base to which they're appealing, etc., policy-wise, they're actually quite similar. It, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? And so that's why I think you know the personality and the way that they manage to persuade different sections of the electorate is going to be absolutely key because it doesn't seem uh, from um, a look at their election programmes that either is proposing anything substantially different from the other and there's not nobody's really standing on a mandate for huge change. It's much more, in that sense, personality-led. Mm. And if Prabowo Subianto does win, Samira, what sort of an Indonesia will he fashion? Are we going to see something where perhaps the army has increased power? So you could argue that it's a military dictatorship in all but name. It's obviously hard to predict. Um, it, you'd expect maybe increased military spending, maybe given the alliances that you mentioned earlier with more hardline Islamist groups, maybe more kind of presence of Islam in daily life, uh, maybe more kinds of rules about things like women's dress. Um those are all the kinds of things you'd expect. And, and and from his kind of past record and some of the statements he'd made, maybe less uh, kind of respect for independent democratic institutions in the country too. OK, so all will be revealed. Now, you mentioned earlier the idea of, of election management, which leads quite nicely to our next topic. And this is India, because the election commission in that country is being described by critics as, and I quote, a toothless tiger. And it comes in with claims that its rules are being broken by candidates standing in the country's election. Now, the guidelines are meant to create a level or playing field and include prohibitions, for example, on using government transport and resources, along with restrictions on permissible forms of campaigning. However, it has been alleged that the governing party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been blatantly ignoring the rules. And I guess, James, that um, the Commission has got quite a, a bit of a job on its hands if you, if you take some stats into account, because India is the world's largest democracy. I found a stat which said that you've got something like 900 million people above the age at which they're registered to vote, so that being 18, and an election process that runs through May. So I guess the point that I'm getting at is that you have to accept the fact that there may be a couple of hiccups in the system. And to continue the uh, the tiger metaphor, how many teeth would a tiger need to have in order <laughs> to have a proper grip on a system like this? I mean, I think, you know, it is commendable the way that India, with the population the size it has, manages to hold democratic elections. But inevitably, given the geographical size of that and poor communications in rural areas, it is going to be a considerable challenge, particularly as in every election, uh, everywhere in the world, there are people who are desperate to win and may therefore be tempted on occasions to bend the rules. So I think it is probably something substantially difficult to, to, to ensure that it goes well but um, it is you know it's it's a it's a it's a huge task to administer something like this and, and as I say I think it's admirable that India manages to you know country of this size uh, which you know uh, as we read it is heading possibly to overtake China in population in the mm. coming years uh, and thereby so it's got become, its work cut out well, for it's it really. the largest population <laughs> in the world so it's, you know it's good that in a way that you know they're even trying to do this but inevitably one would imagine with a population of that size 
over that geographical area with poor communications, particularly in rural areas, it's very, very difficult to run an election. And is there a sense, Samira, that there are rules in place, but perhaps the, the Commission feels, well, you have, to, you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. In other words, there's a bit of a gentleman's agreement. You know what the rules are, so we trust you where we can to just get on with it and adhere what is there. I think they have been trying to do a bit more than that um, and to, to kind of, um, you know, censure where they can in the cases of the most egregious violations of the Code of Conduct. But I think they are kind of limited in what they can do. As far as I'm aware, they can't impose monetary fines. They can't disqualify candidates. They can send letters. Mm. And if there's a criminal case, they can refer it to the police. But I think that part of the problem, though? They don't yeah. actually have any, any serious I think powers, so, but I think, so to speak. Yeah, I think we see that with electoral commissions all around the world. Mm. I mean, if you look at the violations of campaign spending rules in the Brexit campaign, for instance, that have come out since, um, mm. you know, I think but there is punishment at the end of that because some of these these well, individuals have been, well, some been, have been, but, well, one, one group was actually fined. Yeah, but they, sort of I mean, retrospective. a lot of the other stuff is kind sure, of going unpunished, sure. but... So I think, I mean, there's a question about what, how much they can do. But I think the the question of um, the logistics and the geographical challenges, sure. But I think some of what you're seeing in India really is um, a very, very obvious and kind of nationwide uh, violation of those rules by the by the incumbent party. For mm. instance, on India's massive network of trains, you've got um, cups with uh, BJP, which is Narendra Modi's party, uh, with the slogans on them. You've got... <laughs> pictures of Modi's face at a business summit on the national carrier and all of that does matter I think and that's like that's kind of from the centrally administered Mm. level you know that's not happening out in some rural area where you can't um, where you can't do anything about it Mm. so I think that there should be better measures in place but I don't know what really what those look like unless if you're kind of unless you give an electoral commission power to actually disqualify candidates um, and I don't know that any government would be particularly willing to do that. Mm. And isn't this part of the problem as well, that um, the, the commission, it can identify the flaws, it can send out a letter tap, tapping somebody on the knuckles, but they don't necessarily have to take any notice. But also as well, not just the logistics, it's the time. In this country, we're used to the elections happening. You've got the build up, you have the vote, you then have the count. Everything's pretty much done and dusted in a couple of days. But in India, the, the election process is a lot more lengthy. That's right. And I think Samira makes some very good points when you know, she talks about the fact that you know, these, these alleged abuses, but where by you know, mainstream parties in mainstream areas, there is very little that the Electoral Commission can do. In a sense, it relies upon parties wanting to stick to the rules and wanting to observe them. And if they choose not to, there is limited sanction in this case. Uh, and I think she also, I think Samira, you also make a very good point that you know which party is going to actually want to introduce stricter rules for fear it mm. may come back to to bite them. You know, a tiger that might have too many teeth in the future. <laughs> that tiger analogy. But I mean, Samira, there are also accusations that the commission itself is biased because, for example, there were claims that candidates who use hate speech in their campaigns they're more likely to get elected. Also, you know, doesn't that really suggest that um, there is some kind of bias? There are also claims that. Um, the Commission has been accused of delaying elections to the benefit of, of a governing party. Uh, I didn't quite understand the point about hate speech. Why would that... Uh well, is it the, it's the it's the idea that, that and yeah. again, I'm I'm quoting some yeah. research that basically you've got candidates who use hate speech in their campaigns more mm. likely to get elected. So if you're not clamping down on them, oh, I see, yeah. yeah. So, but so the the inference being there's some kind of bias. You know, it's happening, mm. but you're not doing anything about it. Yeah, I think, I mean, on the hate speech question, hate speech question, I, I kind of struggle to see how that's biased, but I, w- I would see that, again, as a kind of um, continuation of what we've been talking about, of a kind of lack of ability to really do anything meaningful. I think there have been instances where 
uh, certainly in the last election campaign, and I think uh, in this one, if not if not this one, it, in regional elections that happened in December, there have been instances where candidates have either been disqualified or referred to the police for criminal investigations over hate speech, which is a huge, huge problem, I think, as you have um, kind of resurgent Hindu nationalism mm. endorsed by Modi, and um, which has actually meant that the kind of extreme right has gone much further to the right, because what was the extreme right is now the mainstream um, kind of huge whipping up of communal tension. So I think... Um, I think that's profoundly worrying in in many more ways than just the election. And I think, um, again, you'd like to see an electoral commission that can do more meaningfully about that, but I don't know that they can. Um, And certainly uh, on the the kind of broader question of bias, I think there's a kind of... um, quite broad spectrum anxiety about institutions I think in lots of ways and so I couldn't speak specifically to to bias in the electoral commission but I know for instance that local police forces are seen as very partisan which is one reason why the elections take place over six weeks is because federal mm. forces need to be deployed and there aren't enough of them to be at so many polling stations all the time <laughs> because you know to kind of um, try and diminish the the appearance of partisan mm. um, That's bias. That's thing called so logistics really isn't it? Yeah exactly and so it's you know it's um, certainly an issue. But when you talk about the the, the powers which they they do have, James, to censure, does it really make, well, really, does it matter in today's political cut and thrust? And also as well, if you censor a candidate for his or her conduct, is it really going to impact on the way that people vote? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, one is reminded of the old idea that there's no such thing as bad publicity to an extent. I think it's also true to say that India has a a very vibrant and challenging and and big, big media scene. So obviously in times like this, and this is true of elections all over the world, people who sail close to the wind and say things perhaps they shouldn't, which are on the limits of what is acceptable in, in decent political campaigning, may well succeed in drawing more attention to themselves. If you've got a very competitive media environment, one of the disadvantages of that is that people may be tempted to run things which they might not in order to try and get ahead of, you know, uh, of, of the competitive news channels, which TV news channels are huge in India. Mm. So um, the, in that sense, you know, the, the, the polit- political and media systems serve democracy to a sense but may also sort of occasionally encourage each other to less than laudable behaviour. Mm. I mean, Samira, the final point to you to wrap up this subject. In 2011, Hillary Clinton said India's Electoral Commission was in her the gold standard for election management. Yes, there are problems in the system. We've we've looked at those. But on the whole, do you think that she was right or perhaps was she over-egging the pudding? I think, as James said earlier, the fact that the kind of sheer fact that such attention is given to the process and procedure and that these kinds of codes of conduct actually exist in a country of that scale is something really, really impressive in and of itself. I think... um, you know, many, many democracies don't have uh, such strong kind of sets of procedures and so on. And so I think that is really admirable. But we just have to hope, you know, as we were talking earlier about um, kind of authoritarian trends around the world, you just have to hope that that kind of institution and those guidelines that exist uh, get more powerful and more effective and not less. Mm. So the fact that it's held up so far is, mm. is pretty good going. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> OK, then. We'll leave it there. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guest Samira Shackle and James Rogers. Now, coming up next, the US President Donald Trump is under growing pressure to release his tax records after Democrat Bernie Sanders releases 10 years worth of his tax files, releasing them, in fact, into the public domain. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life 
from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Now, still with me are Samira Shackle and James Roger. Now, Bernie Sanders has become the latest Democratic politician to go public with his tax returns. Mr. Sanders, who's standing as a candidate in the US 2020 presidential election, has released 10 years worth of papers which show his wealth soared after his two previous attempts to make it to the White House. From 2016 to 2018, Mr. Sanders made over $2 million, largely from book deals and the royalties from his writing. Now, the news has put more pressure on US President Donald Trump to release his tax returns, which he says can't be made public because he's under an IRS audit. Now, James, just going through the figures on, on Mr. Sanders' wealth, I mean, he made over $2 million and that is a lot of money. But in some respects, it's small potatoes to what other candidates or former presidential candidates have made after they've made one or two attempts, however many attempts to get back into the White House. They've been able to use it to to leverage more cash. Yes. And I think Mr. Sanders' opponents, while some of them will say, oh, look at this, you know, self-described socialist is a millionaire. It's not really going to stick in the way that other things might, because there's no suggestion here that Mr. Sanders has done anything other than earn this, you know, by his writing. No suggestion he has mm. paid every single cent of mm. tax. And he did release the folk record album as well. And he did do that as well. <laughs> so, you know, not only has he got his tax return in order, but he's, you know, creeping up the charts as well. So it's, um, so I don't think, I mean, I think in some ways, you know, this is a big deal, but really I think, you know, in terms of hard-headed political calculations, anything that Mr. Sanders might lose reputationally, and some people will say, well, hang on a minute, he's talking about us all paying, you know, higher tax to fund better public services at the same time he's a millionaire. I think while some people will think that, they may not necessarily be the people who have considered voting for him in the first place and secondly of course as a political stratagem it does throw the light back onto Donald Trump and say well wait a minute you know why aren't you doing this mm. I mean before before we look at that Samira let's 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 pick up on something else because yes he made a lot of his money from um, his book deals etc but also as well he would have gained from the tax cuts that mm. Donald Trump made. And of course, people have said, well, you know, if you feel these tax cuts are wrong because you oppose them, then maybe you should give away more of your wealth. <laughs> yeah, it's a point. Although I guess um, he is following, you know, he, he's he's paid his full taxes. He's made pretty hefty charitable donations as well. I think, um, as James said, the fact that there's no kind of suggestion that he's either got the money from kind of untoward sources or through the sort of political um, corruption or pseudo-corruption that he that he calls out. Um, he's not really kind of gone against his principles. And uh, I think the the criticism you describe, it might exist. But again, I don't think that's really going to stick with um, Sanders supporters. He's mm. kind of, I don't think his policy position is changed. I mean, I guess the fact that he, you know, he kind of quite specifically rails against millionaires and billionaires and the 1%, mm. and now he technically is part of that 1% and is a millionaire, um, you know, that there is that to square. But I think the line that his policy team have come out with straight away, which is, you know, his policies are unchanged and, um, uh, and he still advocates all the same things and he's followed the and, law. And he pays his you know, tax. Pays his tax. I mean, let's broaden this out because why has it, James, become such a badge of honour, a big thing amongst politicians to actually show that 
you pay your way, with the exception of number 45. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's precisely for that reason, because it, it is in a way for Mr. Trump's political critics and opponents to embarrass him because they're all able to do it and, if they, you know, they all feel comfortable with doing it. Now, Mr. Trump, as you said in your introduction, has got his reasons, he says, for not doing this. Nevertheless, it is not done and it hasn't, you know, and he's not, you know, 10 years is quite a substantial amount. You know, obviously, Mr. Sanders has been uh, in politics for a very long time, but he hasn't been such a high profile, um, you know, in terms of being a presidential candidate for such a very long time. So it is a significant thing. It is a very, and if your tax affairs are uh, all in order, as Mr. Sanders certainly seem to be, I mean, watching some of the American media reporting of this before, you know, I sense a certain note of disappointment in the voice of one of the reporters I saw talking about this, because if they were looking for some major scandal, they simply weren't finding it. And the only thing, as we were saying earlier, that can make this stick and may sort of discourage some of his report, supporters and embolden some of his critics is that he is a millionaire. But, you know, that he's making no secret about that. He's shown the source of the wealth. Mm-hmm. He's shown he's paid tax on it. So I think, really, the, 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 the political effect of this is just to remind everybody, well, what about the president? Yeah. He hasn't done and this. He, and he's not the only one who's actually released 10 years' worth of, of, of documents because of Beto O'Rourke, who's also mm-hmm. thrown his hat into the ring, he's, he's, he's released his, his, his stuff as well. But this is the final point on the subject to you, Samira. Look, Donald Trump claims that the demand for his tax returns is political. You could argue that he has a point in that, you know, you had the Mueller report, OK, we haven't seen the unredacted version of the document, but it certainly appeared to clear him on some of the more serious charges. So given that a lot of emotional expectation was invested in that, is there a sense that maybe the left are going, OK, let's see if we can get him on, on tax. Maybe there's something there, a bit like the old Al Capone situation. I mean, potentially, but I think uh, I, th- I think that's also very valid. I mean, this is a person who has violated uh, kind of constitutional and democratic norms almost since becoming a candidate, not even since taking office, you know, and not declaring family interests and business interests, all sorts of conflicts of interest and so on, breaking nepotism rules. Uh, and, and, you know, whether or not the calls are politically motivated, you know, he's the president, everything's politically motivated to an extent. <laughs> this is not a kind of personalised request. This is something that every Republican uh, and Democratic nominee since 1980, as far as I'm aware, apart from Trump, has um, has revealed their tax returns for at least one year, and he's not r- revealed any. So it's not really a kind of, it's not really a witch hunt. It's a breaking of a norm that's maybe not enshrined in law, but is very, very well-established norm, and that's what he's not done. Mm. And it has to be said as well, mm. according to the IRS that uh, you can still audit somebody's books, mm. but it doesn't stop you from actually releasing them if you want to have a look at what's, uh, what's, what's in the cupboard. Yeah. OK, let's move on to our final topic, because some of France's wealthiest families have pledged money to finance the restoration of Notre Dame Cathedral, which has been partially damaged in a major fire. Now, amongst the donors are the Pinot family, which controls the French luxury conglomerate Kering, whose brands include Gucci and Yves Saint Laurent. Now, the fire caused the roof and spire of the 850-year-old cathedral to collapse, and the authorities believe that the blood was not started deliberately. So, James, President Emmanuel Macron, he has appealed for help, not just within the country, but also beyond. And that call, it appears, has been Mm. heeded. There are those who would say, look, what happened was absolutely appalling. But France is a wealthy country. So why would the EU or indeed any other country for that matter actually help out with the costs or should help out with the costs? Well, I mean, I think in some cases, I mean, I I was reading a report about... um, 
a town in Hungary that sent uh, 10,000 euros because they were helped by the French relief fund when they had floods in the 19th century. So I think it's beyond, the significance of this, these gestures is beyond uh, the mere financial implications. It's something about saying, you know, we value this. You, you know, it may be something in France, it may be a, a French landmark, but we, we, you know, in the wider world value this too and we're willing to, con- we would like to contribute to this, to, to having it r- repaired, restored, whatever is possible to do. Mm. Uh, Samira, if I were very cynical, I would say, look, of course you've got these wealthy French families and billionaires who are going to contribute because it offsets quite nicely on their taxes and also, I guess, the more you get in the restoration, you might be in some way memorialised for it. So in itself, that smacks of something very historical, doesn't it? Rich people giving to the church and they get something back in return, the stained glass window dedicated to the Mm. generosity, that sort of thing. Potentially, yeah. I mean... You know, you, I think there's there's often that question mark over massive uh, donations, but I do think um, it's obviously uh, not just a kind of hugely important world heritage site, but the emotional resonance of it uh, in France is enormous. I think that uh, you know cynical motivations may exist, but it's uh, I think there's no doubting how kind of profoundly many French people feel this uh, this loss it's a huge huge landmark it's a kind of um a real piece of history and symbol of civilization mm. and to uh, you know added to that the kind of religious significance of the site i think i think that that is real and that's something that many people feel from you know not just regular people but you know there's no reason that these uh, extremely rich citizens who are donating wouldn't feel something of mm. that too and, and james in terms of emmanuel macron he has been praised for the way that he has handled this because it's not the sort of thing that any any leader would want on his or her watch but what could it do for him politically? Because his country has been torn apart by these awful protests, by these gilets jaunes and the fallout that, that comes from that. I think, to be honest with you, Juliet, the answer is not a huge amount. I mean, he can probably get it underway. But if you think about how long this project is going to take, it may well last longer than Mr. Ma- Monsieur Macron's presidency, even should he be re-elected. I mean, there's, you know, if you, if you consider it, it's hard for us to understand, I think, in the modern age. But, you know, in medieval times, people would have started work as a stonemason on these cathedrals mm. and would have known that would be their whole life and they wouldn't even Absolutely. see it finished. And obviously, one assumes and one hopes it's not going to take that long um, to restore this. But it is going to be one imagined it's hard to say at this early mm. stage a matter of years rather than you know possibly even decades and very very briefly Samira look what does that say especially in this country the protection of our buildings we have the complaints about Westminster well mm. the Houses of Parliament and they're yeah. whacked in scaffolding etc so do you think that this takes the heat out of these claims oh well why should the taxpayer fund it yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, I think, a note of alarm about uh, some of our crumbling historic buildings. I was reading that uh, between t- 2008 and 2012, there were 40 fires in the Palace of Westminster, small scale, but, you know, mm. it kind of shows the scale the of the potential. problem. Yeah, I think so. These old historic buildings, kind of nooks and crannies and so on, and, and wooden beams, it's a big risk. Mm, absolutely. Our heritage, mm. so it must be protected. That brings us to the end of today's show. Samira Shackle and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco. It was researched by Rory Goodrick, and our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next, and at 1900 hours, it's Monocle on Design with Josh Fernert. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 22. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye.